this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin from the University of New South Wales, Canberra campus at the Australian Defence Force Academy. And we're recording this podcast by telephone and Zoom during the COVID lockdown. So please forgive any unusual issues with our sound quality. In 2020, the RAN Hydrographic Service celebrates its centenary. In this, the second of the two episodes, we will discuss the exploits of the RAN Hydrographic Service from the end of World War II up until today. And I'm indeed fortunate to be joined by the current and two former hydrographers of the Navy. They are Commodore John Compton, who in his career commanded the survey ships Flinders and Moresby, and was the hydrographer from 1985 to 1990. Commodore Rod Nan, who commanded four hydrographic ships, was the first officer in charge of the Laser Airborne Depth Sounder Unit, and to date is the RN's longest serving hydrographer from 2004 to 2013. And Commodore Fiona Freeman, who has commanded the survey ships Benella and HS Red Crew and the Lewin class ships, and has been the hydrographer of Australia since 2017. Thank you all for joining me. First off, John Compton. Arguably one of the byproducts of World War II was an accelerated hydrographic survey of the waters of the Southwest Pacific. And we've talked about the strategic context in which that became a necessity in the last episode. What were the hydrographic priorities immediately after the war? And what ships were available for the tasks? Well, at the end of the war, there were 10 ships and six tenders in, in commission or available. And in 1946, the government of the day stated that as a result of wartime experiences, the RAN would continue to be the charting authority for the hydrographic surveys of Australia, waters, and the waters of Australian sphere of interest in the Pacific. Cabinet endorsed a 25-year program. The initial priorities were routes between and approaches to Australian ports, the Great Barrier Reef, Torres Strait and Papua New Guinea. The area of chart Australian charting responsibility was accepted as being uh, from Antarctica up to Indonesia, under Indonesia to the border of Papua New Guinea and up to the equator and then down through the Tasman Sea to Antarctica again. It was very large area. By 1946, there were four ships. By 1947, there were three ships and one GPV. And by 1948, there were two ships and one GPV. So in a sense, it mirrors the um, period of time from the early period of time in the 1920s leading into the Depression. The Navy did run down considerably after the war and the hydrographic service suffered as just the same as others. Rodney, had the great technological advances during the war years changed the way in which hydrography was done and charts produced? Look, I'll, I'll get onto the technology, but from my perspective, I think the big change was actually in resources, not technology, and the sudden realisation of the importance of hydrography, how crucial it had been to enabling safe navigation, efficient maritime trade and providing freedom of navigation to ships ensuring our security of trade routes as a nation. Up until World War II, the Hydrographic Service had struggled to keep one ship operating and 
progress had been piecemeal and slow, but the productivity shown with multiple ships operating in separate areas during the war years was a real lesson. And after the war, as John's just pointed out, um, there were three ships start allocated to the task. And apart from a, uh, that die-off um, in the post-war years, multiple vessels have been allocated to the task ever since. The second change was in the organisation and capability ashore. During the war and from necessity, Australia started to produce its own charts and in 1942 became the charting authority for task group 70.5. And that capability continued after the war finished. Now, from a technological perspective, it was all down to electronics, radar, sonar and radio technology. Decker fixing systems had been established in the north and northwest of Australia. Most of these were shut down after the war. But the technology of using HF radio waves to produce hyperbolic lines of position developed into a portable radio system, positioning system, which uh, such as Lambda, which meant low ambiguity Decker from the 1950s on. And later that advanced to more precision systems called HiFix, which was also made by Decker and Argo. It stood for automatic ranging and grid overlay. Now, when I say portable, it's a bit of a relative term. It would take 20 men a couple of days to build each 30-metre tower and the spider web of ground plane wires um, and then a few diesel generators to power them and a whole bunch of people to keep the station operating. And you needed three of these radio towers to get a, a fix. So setting up the survey and building your, your network was, was a real challenge uh, and it was a major part of any survey. So the longer the surface went for, I guess the more efficient. Now, sonar had been developed to a great extent during the war for submarine detection. And it was also adapted and fitted to survey ships to provide a look ahead to avoid navigation dangers and keep the ships safe. It was also used to scan the seafloor area between sounding lines to look out for dangers that might exist and otherwise go undetected. These first sonars were massive units and they were in use during the war and they continued afterwards, but they required qualified underwater weapon sailors to operate them. And it wasn't until the 1960s that they'd become smaller and simpler and could be operated by the bridge team. You could still make mistakes though, and I'll come back to this later. Echo Sounder development was a spin-off of sonar. Back in the 1920s, Echo Sounder was a really new technology, even to the extent that when you put soundings on your fair sheet, that had come from an echo sounder, they had to put, be put in a different colour because they weren't considered as reliable as the old lead line soundings. Well, this had certainly turned around during the war and echo sounder had become quite accepted and reliable. Despite all these advancements, when I started surveying in 1980, we were still using horizontal sex and angles for positioning high accuracy inshore work and using a lead line to check on echo sounders on occasions. And to this day, survey ships still use a calibrated bar check to check the accuracy of their echo sounders, even of the latest, latest generation. So some great developments, but still a lot of traditions. Fiona Freeman, in the late 1950s, the Navy decided to build its own purpose-built survey ship, starting with the second HMAS Moresby, which commissioned in 1962. What was the impact of that development? As you said, Moresby was purpose-built to undertake survey work. Um, she actually commissioned in 1964 
And when she did, she was one of the most advanced vessels of her type in the world. Um, she had three survey motorboats embarked that could operate independently for extended periods from the ship. She had space on board to accommodate extra sea riders, and she could also embark a helicopter. Over her 33-year life, she decommissioned in 1997, she steamed over 1 million nautical miles, and she conducted surveys all around the Australian coast, Tasmania, Torres Strait, and the Gulf of Papua. Her long life and effective service reflected the design and build and I think most significantly highlight, highlighted the value of, of having specialised ships undertaking survey activities. She certainly changed how we thought about doing surveying in Australia. John Compton, the converted frigate HMS Diamond Tina and then the purpose-built HMS Cook, also undertook oceanographic work. How did their work differ from the hydrographic survey work? Oceanography was tied up with the description of the properties of the sea and uh, the sea floor and its biological uh, content. Uh, we had two ships available. In fact, we had Diamantina and Gascoigne, river-class frigates from World War II through the 50s and into the 70s. HMAS Kimbler as a boom ship uh, carried out a lot of um, experimental oceanographic work uh, for the Navy's research laboratory and also for the weapons research establishment. They carried out numerous cruises for the RAN research laboratory, for CSIRO, for the weapons research establishment, for universities, for the Bureau of Mineral Resources, for VIMS and for AIMS. Uh, they conducted deep ocean sounding, water column, density, temperature, salinity measurements, seafloor sampling, marine biology, magnetic field and acoustics. That's a very broad spectrum and a very wide spectrum, but most of the work ended up being for entities external to the Navy, but having interests similar to, some, some interests similar to uh, the naval requirements for anti-submarine warfare and for submarine operations. Now, HMAS Cook, was commissioned specifically as a very, very modern uh, oceanographic ship. She was very, very capable indeed. Uh, however, she had a very, very poor start to life. It took over two years after her commissioning to get her uh, properly operational. And then there were problems with manpower. She was very heavily uh, invested with men. She had a crew of over 150. And there were requirements elsewhere in the service uh, for manpower. So Cook was, became a little bit of a lemon in some respects, um, which was very sad. Her greatest, um, I guess, not achievement, but uh, her, her greatest moment was being the review ship for the Bicentenary in 1988 with the Duke and Duchess of York on board. Her life was 1982 to 1990, but effectively 1984 to 1990. So she had six years of service. She was sold out of the service, and uh, I believe she's still in operation in the Mediterranean. Um, and I think at one stage she was being talked of as a, a floating casino.
the loss of the oceanographic remit didn't seem to be felt too badly um, by the rest of the Navy. Uh, I think um, other area uh, people were concerned. I think the US Navy was concerned because they were hoping to get um, another oceanographic partner in the in the Western Pacific. Uh, but the CSIRO became more and more and more and more involved in oceanography, and they have now a very, very fine uh, suite of equipment and vessel in the investigator and um, operating out of Hobart. Uh, and I think that their capability and the things that they were doing provided a form of justification for doing away with oceanography as a practical um, part of, of, of the naval um, scene. And um, the Navy still operates a an oceanographic data centre, which is important because, I mean, that's the collection and uh, transference of information into what is required by defence. But um, yes, Cook was a grand experiment, but sadly, not a very uh, happy outcome. Rodney, in 1981, Commander James Bond in HMAS Flinders discovered Hydrographer's Pass through the Great Barrier Reef. Can you briefly tell us this story and what was the impact of that particular discovery? Yeah, the real driver between for the need for a, a new shipping route from the central Queensland ports to the Coral Reef was the mineral boom and the discovery of a massive Bowen Basin coal deposit, which happened in the late 1960s. This led to the development and expansion of a whole bunch of new coal ports along that section of the central Queensland coast, from Hay Point, Dalrymple Bay, uh, south of Mackay, up to Abbott Point, just north of Mackay. The problem that they had was that in order to get to this part of the coast, ships from Asia, which was most of our markets, North Asia, it was at the time Japan and Korea, but you know, now, now obviously China as well, um, had to enter the reef either up at Grafton Passage near Cairns or Palm Passage north of Townsville and travel south through this challenging inner Great Barrier Reef shipping route, or they had to pass south of Mackay and almost down to Gladstone and come in through Capricorn Channel and then transverse, traverse up through the inner Great Barrier Reef shipping route. And these routes were long, slow and navigationally challenging for the uh, large coal ships that were coming through that area. So it was a fairly big push to get a direct passage to the Coral Sea. At the time, there hadn't been much survey work in the Barrier Reef since the 1920s, and there was no such thing as satellite imagery to help find a passage. In fact, a lot of the best information still available back in the 70s were the sketch, sketches and aerial photographs taken from the seaplane reconnaissance that was done back in the 1920s. There were some efforts to um, search for a route in the mid-70s, but none of the gaps in the reef were considered suitable for deep draft ships. But the pressure was building, and in 1981, the hydrographic department um, allocated 30 weeks um, to HMAS Flinders under the command of Lieutenant Commander James Bond. That's two full survey seasons. 
to find and survey a route for deep jar ships. I don't think he was given an alternative. And that's exactly what he did. He found a route. Um, it was challenging. It was less than one mile wide in parts. It was subject to strong tidal streams. And even outside the barrier reef, he found that instead of the continental shelf dropping off immediately, it actually shelved off gently down to about 300 metres. And about eight miles off, off the outside of the reef, there was still another range of reefs which were dangerous to navigation. So it became quite an interesting work. But the reef was found and the work of Flinders was later recognised by the Royal Geographical Society um, as one of the most valuable works of modern day explorers in the Australian Hydrographic Service. Another anecdote about this was that it was, that survey was largely responsible for the end of a tradition for hydrographic surveyors placing their own chosen names on charts. <laughs> the Geographic Names Council has now adopted a practice of not naming features after living persons. And if you go to Hydrographer's Passage, you will find every living relative of most of the ship's officers recognised in a reef or a shoal somewhere in that region. The result of this survey is that the direct passage from these Queensland ports to the Coral Sea is reduced by 500 nautical miles on the round trip to our North Asian markets of Japan, Korea and China. It's made significant improvements to the safety of navigation through the Barrier Reef. And until today, the hydrographer's passage area is still a compulsory pilotage area because of its complicated navigation and it's serviced by helicopters um, from the port of Mackay. Now, Fiona Freeman, from the 1970s onwards, there were significant technological advances in global positioning systems, navigation and computers. What was particularly significant for the hydro service in all of this and what impact did these advances have on the actual practice of hydrography? There are indeed many significant advances through the 70s and 80s, probably the most of any period over the last 100 years. Um, they contributed to greater accuracy in both positioning and determining the depth of water. I'll highlight just a few of them, and Rod previously has, has mentioned some of the uh, systems, but uh, DECA and Lambda and HiFix were electronic position fixing systems that were fitted to the ships from the 1970s onwards. Um, transit satellite navigation systems um, entered service in 1973 for use in offshore surveys, followed then by shore-based systems to establish geodetic control. Uh, Lambda and HiFix were replaced by Argo um, with its thermal generation power supply. Uh, Mini Ranger became the new short-range electronic position finder. Um, it had both wind and solar power generation. And new shallow and deep water echo sounders replace the systems that had been in use for 30 years. Uh, the hydrographic logging and processing system, known as Hydelapse, was introduced to ships during the period, and the auto chart system entered service in 1978 for the production of nautical charts. As you said, the global positioning system, GPS, replaced other electronic position fixing systems in the late 1980s. Um, and a technology that we'll talk about a little later, that of laser airborne depth sounder, underwent the feasibility trials in the late 1970s 
So a very busy period as far as technological advancement. All these advances meant that not only increased accuracy, which correlates directly to the production of improved navigation products, but also an increased efficiency in data collection. Larger areas were able to be covered in shorter timeframes and surveyors had to focus more on managing larger volumes of data than in earlier years. So whilst there are still significant components of shore work required, uh, advances in technology now means that surveyors spent significant periods of time on computers checking and assuring data before it was then used for navigational purposes. Fiona, just a quick follow-up. I assume that this change in the way that hydrography was done had implications for the way we trained our hydrographic officers and sailors? There is no doubt the training has evolved over the years, but fundamentally the core principles of hydrographic surveying remain the same. You need to understand um, positioning, you need to understand accuracy, you need to understand geodesy, um, just as some indications. But what we are now doing is focusing more attention on um, the use and analysts of computer skills. So rather than changing training, I think what we have done is just add more onto it so that the surveyor today has a much more wider range of skills than they probably would have had needed to have in the past. Well, John Compton, in the late 1980s, the Navy continued along this technological development in terms of hydrographic service, and we accepted into service four Paluma-class survey motor launches for inshore survey. Now, a launch sounds like a relatively small vessel, but these ships were 350 tonnes and 35 metres long. You were the hydrographer at the time. Is there a bit of a story to their classification? Yes, there is a story. Um, in 1971, uh, the hydrographer of the day, John Osborne, convened a meeting in Sydney with the Naval Scientific Advisor and me, who had just come back from America, uh, and um, other interested parties on how we can speed up the hydrographic survey work. There was still an enormous area to cover, cover and a lot, of shallow, a lot of it was in shallow water. My time in America, two things came out. One was the Vietnam War caused the Americans to look seriously at laser uh, work. Uh, they developed a thing called a pulse laser depth sounder which they had fitted to helicopters and hoped that it would be of use in the riverine operational areas in Vietnam. And it turned out that the turbidity was too much, so that uh, was shelved. But WRE had just um, had a very great success with a, um, a laser profiler for army surveying, and it was thought that that might hold promise. The other thing that we thought of or was thought of was... Uh, small vessels, but small vessels that had to be uh, really self-contained. The GPVs and tenders of World War II uh, really uh, were able to do a lot of work, but they needed to have support relatively nearby. There was then a push to uh, say how big, how small, how many crew. The Navy was, again, manpower was becoming critical again, and therefore these things had to be um, quite small in terms of uh, manpower. Now, 
I got posted to Canberra in 1974, and my first task was to put in a staff target for survey motor launches. And the term motor launch uh, was deliberately chosen because it had the connotations of a small craft or a smaller craft. It went into the system in 1974. Uh, and shortly after that, the LAD system went into the system as a staff target uh, in 1975. These projects developed to the stage of staff requirements, but they languished because they couldn't get priority within the procurement system. In 1985, the Minister for Defence, Mr Beasley, visited Moresby on the survey grounds in Joseph Bonaparte Gulf, and he made inquiries as to how much work was still required to be done and what is being done to speed up the task. The commander of Moresby was the later hydrographer, Commodore John Leach. Uh, he mentioned the projects in being in Canberra, the survey motor launches and the LADS. And he also mentioned HydLabs, the data logging and plotting system. Mr. Beasley was very interested to hear of those projects. Uh, he was also a great strategic thinker himself, and he was a very capable and competent Minister for Defence, in my opinion. When he came back to Canberra, he asked the question, where are my survey motor launches and where is my LADS? And what about the data logging and plotting system? Well, very quickly, the staff requirement documents and project documents were dusted off and brought up to date. And uh, very shortly thereafter, fully fledged projects were in being and the first survey motor launch was commissioned in 1989, followed by the, uh, the other four survey motor launches. The tendering process was interesting. A number of uh, craft were put forward, but the catamaran was chosen on the basis of its stability its big little size, very big little size. Uh, it was chosen from a working ship called the Philandra, uh, which was the ferry from Kingscote in um, Kangaroo Island across to Cape Jarvis, uh, which was used as a, a vehicular ferry and a passenger ferry. So you can imagine there for it was big uh, for a small boat. Eglo Engineering won the contract. Eglo was taken over by Transfield, but uh, they built the ships at uh, Osmond in South Australia and they were commissioned one after another at the period of time, 1980, August 89 through to um, May, March of 1990. I think they've been very successful vessels. Um, they have the uh, added ability to uh, support personnel, large personnel movements. Um, they were small crew. They, they were commissioned as with a crew of 12, 
and to work in pairs so that the chief ERA would be in one vessel and the chief electrician would be in the other vessel. And as pairs, they would be mutually supportive and they had a good range. Uh, their biggest drawback was their slow speed, 12 knots max. But it was an exciting period of time because in one day, uh, a press conference was held and Mr. Beasley announced that the four servo myrtle inches were going to be built. The project was underway. The LADS aircraft, LADS project was going to be uh, put in train and the Hydelapse project was an approved project. So the hydrographic service in one day uh, had um, all its chickens come home to roost. A very good day indeed for the hydrographic service. And Fiona Freeman, you have commanded the newest of our survey ships, the Lewin class. What's their role? And can you tell us a bit about their particularly novel crewing arrangement? Uh, HMA ships Lewin and Melville are the two hydrographic ships that make up the Lewin class. Um, they were commissioned together in 2000, which is quite a novel event from a Navy perspective. Until October 2018, the ships were multi-crewed. Um, that is, there were three crews, very originally named Red, White and Blue, that rotated through the two hulls. I had the privilege of commanding HS Red Crew from 2006 to 2009. The concept behind the three crews was to enhance the rate of survey effort by maximising sea days. The crewing model was designed to achieve 225 sea days per year for each hull. So the crews generally rotated 14 to 15 weeks on one hull um, and seven to eight weeks off working in an onshore facilities before rotating back onto a hull. The role of Lewin and Melville has been largely focused on undertaking nautical national charting and survey operations, but over their 20-year life, due to their versatility and the ample space they have on board and the significant endurance that they have, They've been employed in a wide range of maritime taskings, including border protection operations, humanitarian assistance missions, and a range of ad hoc taskings, most, re most recently doing regional engagement in the Southwest Pacific. In the last two years, the ships have reverted to a more traditional crewing concept, the traditional meaning one crew in each hull. Um, with some of the world's best equipment on board now, they still remain a very significant capability and contribute, contribute significantly to the maritime military geospatial information collection role and also to providing training to the specialised workforce. So still a fantastic capability and having just celebrated their 20th birthday, they're still going strong. Yeah, Rodney, both Fiona and John have talked a, a little about LADS, the Navy's Laser Airborne Depth Sounder flight. Now, you were closely involved in the introduction of LADS in 1992. What was it and what's its impact been? Yeah, John mentioned that uh, LADS uh, was a spin-off from the Army laser profiling system in the 1960s. The lead scientist on the project was a chap named Mike Penny, and uh, he's now infamous on the name of a shoal that was discovered during trials, which I'll get to shortly. Um, Mike, um, John also mentioned that uh, the project was sort of envisaged in about 1975. 1975 was the year where they did the first scanning trials um, over water 
they've done some earlier penetration trials over water, but in 1975, they confirmed that they could implement a scanning system on the laser to give you a grid pattern of soundings rather than a single line of soundings. Um, from a project perspective, LADS was pretty amazing and it broke the mould because it was the first one to go through um, a design development and build project and support contract in, in, the, one, in the one contract that was signed. Uh, and that contract was led to BHB Engineering and Vision Systems in Adelaide. And it really became the pin-up poster um, project for commercial support program. I was privileged to be posted in charge of the LADS unit in its final year of that project, in, as you said, in 1992, and took it through its acceptance trials um, in January uh, 93, and, and then through acceptance into naval service in, in October 93. So, so on our first day of operational trials, we, we found an yet undiscovered, uncharted shoal 11 and a half metres deep in the approaches to Port Lincoln where 14 metre draft vessels routinely visited. I looked back into the original survey. It had been done by Commander Harry Dillon um, in the 1960s in Moresby, where they had used a um, what was the SIMRAD sonar to scan between sounding lines. The shoal was 30 metres long and 10 metres wide, and it was aligned uh, east-west direction. The sounding lines were east-west direction, and the shoal was exactly halfway between two sounding lines and it had been missed by Moresby. So it shows that um, systems are fallible. But let's just talk a little bit about LADS. It, it was absolutely revolutionary in a world first. The original system fired a laser at 168 pulses a second and provided a swath width of soundings 220 metres apart and 10 metre spot spacing. The aircraft flying 500 metres above the sea at 145 knots. It could record depths between two and 50 metres, uh, depending on water clarity. And effectively that allowed us to survey 50 square nautical miles in one sortie. It was, um, it was quite, quite amazing. And just as when echo sounders were introduced, people were concerned that maybe the soundings weren't as good as lead line, the same sort of uh, concerns were expressed about lad soundings. But over the years, we, we proved, them, um, proved them to be very reliable. And during its service life, it also had two major upgrades. First, increasing the pulse rate of the laser to 1,000 pulses a second, and the second to 3,000 pulses a second. This allowed the aircraft to fly faster, up to about 200 knots, um, and it could survey 20 square nautical miles an hour. That's close to 100 square nautical miles in a sortie without endangering the vessel. You know, so you could survey over shallows and reefs and all the areas that needed to be surveyed in the barrier reef. It was also changed so that it could record depths down to 80 metres and the aircraft height could change um, and the spot spacing could be varied. So you could do much more detailed survey work with the system. Sadly, LADS was decommissioned in November last year and uh, having been the workhorse of the hydrographic service and produced more than half of the entire survey output of the hydrographic fleet for every one of its 26 years. During that time, LADS has surveyed vast areas of the Australian coast, deployed to the Cocos and Keeling, and Keeling Islands, the Sub-Antarctic, Timor-Leste, Papua New Guinea and New Zealand, 
it's, flaw, it's flown more than 3,000 sorties, conducted 186 surveys, and covered an area of more than 15,000 square nautical miles. That's about 50,000 square kilometres. It was a world first for Australia to get that system operational, and it was probably the most exciting part of my career. John Compton, the work of the REN Hydrographic Service is part of a network of worldwide hydrographic agencies. How do all these agencies coordinate their activities and standardise their products, like charts, for example? Just after the First World War, a group of interested countries had a meeting in London and formed an international hydrographic committee. This was in 1919. Australia was represented uh, through the Admiralty. In 1921, they met again and proposed that they form an International Hydrographic Bureau. In June 1921, there were 10 nations at that meeting. The committee was dissolved and the International Hydrographic Bureau came into being. Prince Albert of Monaco was an interested oceanographer and he offered a building for the headquarters. The building was, that was duly taken up and it was resolved that they would have annual conferences, sorry, conferences every five years between nations who became members of the hydrograph of the International Bureau. Australia shared its membership with the Bureau, with UK, and later New Zealand. Australia became an independent member of the Bureau in 1958, and it was in 1958 that the senior officer in charge of the hydrographic branch, or whatever variation of names that had been in, proliferated over the years, uh, changed to being the hydrographer Royal Australian Navy. Now, the work of the Bureau is to encourage the practice of hydrography for the safety of navigation globally and to harmonise standards, to uh, in develop and support countries who have need of hydrographic work and to have a community of like-minded people scattered through the globe to uh, progress the safety of navigation uh, right across every environment in the maritime world. Uh, it has been a very effective organisation. Um, it has a president and two directors and a technical group. Commodore Tony Cooper was an Australian representative uh, in the, and ran the technical section for a number of years after he retired from the Navy. And recently, more recently, um, an Australian Naval officer, um, Commander Robert Ward, uh, has been the president of the organisation. I'm not sure whether he still is or not. Um, and Commodore John Leach, for a period of time, was a director of the organisation. So Australia, since it's assumption of individual membership in 1958 has been very active in um, 
the workings of the Bureau. Uh, one of the big projects the Bureau started was the GEBCO, General Bathymetric Charts of the Oceans, where all the passage sounding ships were encouraged to, if they had a suitable echo sounder, to run lines of soundings wherever they were on passage. All that work and it, countries were given a specific area to look after. Australia had a number of JEBCO sheets to look after. Shipping companies sent their information, sent their information in, and we put it on the JEBCO sheets to fill in all the huge gaps in the world's oceans, just from a bathymetric point of view. But I suppose particularly the the, the most important bit of it all is standardization of process and standardization of uh, nomenclature and standardization of symbology so that even if you couldn't understand the language of a chart, uh, you knew what it was all about because uh, of the way in which it was put together. Uh, and the coordination by and large, I think has been very successful. Fiona and Rod might like to comment on their experiences with the IHB um, since they, in their times as the hydrographer. Now, Fiona, as a follow-on from John's comments on international cooperation, can you talk about that cooperation today? Well, as John said, the cooperation has, has always been good and Australia has always ta taken an active and actually a leadership role um, in the international organisation. That continues today. Um, I am currently the chair of the Southwest Pacific Hydrographic Commission, which is a body um, in the region that represents the IHO's interests um, for the particular region. And we actively are engaged in setting standards and working in working groups um, in the international community that continues um, as it has done from the past that, that John has mentioned. So um, whilst, whilst we historically have had people representing us in key roles, um, today we, we don't have anyone sitting in key positions, but we do actively engage in a whole range of activities in the international space. So Fiona Freeman, as the current hydrographer, you are having to largely deliver charts electronically rather than in paper form as has traditionally been the case. So what are the challenges facing the hydrographic service now? Are you seeing any particular or new challenges in the near future? So, yes, increasingly paper charts are becoming less relevant to the mariner for navigation safety. Um, the hydrographic office has been focused on prioritising electronic navigation charts for several years now, um, and we're actively in fact, very actively, reducing our folio of paper charts that we produce. Um, I could talk at, at length about the challenges we face, and I don't think necessarily that they would be widely varied or different to, to my predecessors. Um, the challenges around staffing, around maintaining standards, around meeting demands, I think have been common over 100 years. But when I think of immediate challenges facing the hydrographic service, two broad themes spring to mind. I think the first is management of data. There is an increasing volume of data being collected, not only by Navy ships, but by scientific bodies um, from industry, 
from corporate organisations um, and there's an increasing demand for access to authoritative data. So we need to be confident that we have the most accurate, relevant and verified data available um, when producing navigation safety products. The second challenge is probably maintaining the balance between the ever-growing demands from mariners for better, more timely products, um, while still maintaining and adhering to best practice and those long-established standards that ensure the safe navigation and the safe products that get used. So by maintaining standards, I mean um, across all aspects of our business, professional training, accreditation, application of cartographic standards, data assurance. So some significant challenges there, both now and going forward as things continue to evolve. Well, the RN hydrographic service has come a long way in 100 years from soundings originally done by Matthew Flinders through to laser airborne depth sounding and electronic charts. So finally, looking back on that 100 years of RN hydrographic service, May I ask each of you for a concluding thought? First off, John Compton. My concluding thought would be that the hydrographic service in its 100 years grew very, very quickly, proved its competence enormously during the difficult times of World War II, and post-World War II has grown into being one of the uh, leading hydrographic organisations in the world through its technological advance and its uh, willingness to help other uh, countries. The DCP program was particularly relevant, relevant through the Southwest Pacific uh, during the 80s. Rodney, a final thought from you. The surveying and charting work of the Hydrographic Service has made shipping safer. It has contributed to protecting our maritime environment especially our unique Great Barrier Reef, and it's allowed for the opening of new ports to support Australia's international trade so vital to our economy. But during that time, the hydrographic service has also been at the forefront of both technological and social developments. The stabilised narrow beam echo sounder in HMAS Cook was the forerunner of multi-beam sounding systems in use today. These multi-beam sounding systems are now producing billions of soundings in a, in a survey season, which leads to the data management challenges, which were mentioned by Fiona earlier. Australia pioneered the use of aircraft in support of hydrographic surveying way back in the 1920s, and again put it into effect in 1960 with a helicopter permanently embarked in HMAS Moresby. Australia's been the leader, and been a leader, I should say, in the use of computer-based data management and production systems the development of an oceanographic and hydrographic database, digital chart production, started back in the 1970s with our auto chart system. In the 1980s, we started using satellite imagery, which was then Landsat, to help identify uncharted reefs and shoals in unsurveyed waters. Proved invaluable in the discovery and survey of Star Reefs Passage in Papua New Guinea in 1985. And today, um, satellite sense bathymetry is starting to provide great reconnaissance results. The laser airborne depth soundry was a world first and changed the hydrographic world, enabled rapid and shallow, safe shallow water sounding in dangerous reef strewn areas. 
But on the social side, I think the Australian Hydrographic Service needs to be remembered for recognising their leadership in equalising the employment opportunities for women. In 1989, the Australian Hydrographic Service became the first branch of the RAN to post women to sea. Initially, the senior survey ship HMAS Moresby, but then followed postings of female officers to HMAS Flinders and officers and sailors to the survey motor launches. Women at sea in seagoing roles is now standard practice across the Navy. In 1997, Commander Jenny Dates became the first female commanding officer of an RAN ship posted as commanding officer of HMAS Shepparton. And later in her career, Captain Dates also became the first female commander of a major survey ship when she was posted HS Red Crew in HMAS ships Lewin and Melbourne. And finally, Commodore Fiona Freeman here with us today is our first female hydrographer of Australia. Congratulations, Fiona. There's no doubt that the Hydrographic Service has made a real difference to Australia over its first hundred years and has earned a global reputation as a world leader. And I believe every person associated with the service, whether they served at sea or at the Hydrographic Office, would be very proud of the part they've played. The principle still applies. No day too long, no task too arduous. And Fiona Freeman, a final thought from you. Hard act to follow from both John and Rod there. Um, to begin with, I think a 100-year mark is a special occasion for any organisation. For me, it's undoubtedly a time to celebrate everything that's been achieved by the Australian Hydrographic Service over the last century. It's a time to acknowledge the people and the significant milestones that have occurred and recognise that we have a proud legacy to uphold. We've certainly had some amazing people who have served with distinction and we've achieved many great things since 1920. It's important to recognise and remember our past, but knowing that, we also need to continue looking forward. The last 100 years has contributed to what today remains a relatively small organisation, but with a very significant responsibility. Because of the efforts of our predecessors, it's a well-respected organisation, both internationally and domestically. My role and the remit upon those of us within the Hydrographic Service today is to continue to build on that reputation. We need to play a leading role in the collection of data and the development of electronic navigation charts and products in order to ensure the continuing ongoing safety of ships navigating in Australian waters. Our centenary this year, the 100 years, is the opportunity for us to reflect on all of this, a chance to honour the past and then turn our attention to the future. Well, that's all we have time for, and our sincere thanks to you, our listeners, for joining us for these two special commemorative episodes on the occasion of the 100th anniversary of the Royal Australian Navy's Hydrographic Service. My thanks to John Compton, Fiona Freeman and Rod Nan for their kind participation. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales, and its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia, and the Submarine Institute of Australia. And in particular, for these two episodes, the Naval Studies Group would like to acknowledge the work of the noted hydrographer and historian, Mr Kevin Slade, and for his advice and information and preparation for these two episodes. Tragically, Kevin died suddenly earlier this year, and these episodes are dedicated to his memory. So thank you all for joining us and for more information on the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, simply search for Naval Studies Group on your search engine. Goodbye for now.